to take a moment, I just feel led to do this, um, just to go ahead and close your eyes and um, maybe come before the Lord, ask the Lord for his, um, his presence, for his uh, nearness, and if there's any sort of um, um, trouble that you bring in today, any sort of block, anything that would be hindering your ability to um, receive what the Lord would have for you from his word, um, just give that to him. any sort of fears, any anxiety, just say, Lord, I give that to you. Pray that you take it away from me or at least um, work in spite of that in my heart. Lord, I pray that you would empower um, your word, as you always do by your Holy Spirit, um, to um, be understood by us and then to change our lives um, through your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it, uh, John chapter 1. We're going to be in John chapter 1. And um, I failed to mention this on Easter Sunday uh, when we read John chapter 1, 1 to 18. But um, we are going to start, uh, and we've already started, you can see through the graphic that we've put up before, um, a study in the Gospel of John. And this is something that's going to take us a really long time. Um, we're going to walk through the whole Gospel. And so every, every year in our lectionary, our lectionary is the, the scheduled readings of scripture that we follow, um, you'll notice that we always read a gospel reading that comes out front, and it's normally, there's three years, and the three years follow Matthew, and then the second year, Mark, and then the third year, John, or uh, excuse me, Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and those kind of go on a rotation. John is, is kind of s- sprinkled throughout um, during Eastertide, during Christmastide, stuff like that, but um, I thought this year it would be a lot of fun to um, just walk through the, the Gospel of John since it doesn't get its own walkthrough. So through all of ordinary time, that's what we'll be doing, um, and it has its own really unique um, character as a gospel, as an account of Jesus' life, and that's what we're doing today. So we're picking up right after the beginning of this is the Word became flesh, and he was, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. Um, he, he, he became flesh, um, and, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld God's glory. After that, the first thing that John does, John the Gospel writer, who is different from John the Baptist, is he, he launches into an account, a really brief account, of John the Baptist's testimony about who Jesus is. So right away, we're getting from John, we're getting an, a witness kind of in the courtroom of, is Jesus really who he said he was? We're getting a witness who is the forerunner. This, this guy who was, uh, had incredible popularity, this guy who had a, a, a huge impact on um, the, the surrounding region, he was, everyone recognized this as a man of God, and um, he got the opportunity to point out, and we'll, we'll talk about that, him pointing out uh, Jesus. Um, I want to describe a little bit what, it's lo- what it was like at the time uh, to feel this new wave of energy come through with John the Baptist. So, you have to think, at the end of the Old Testament, the last thing, if you're in John, I know that there's a couple more books before that, but you have to go to Luke, then to Mark, then to Matthew. And the last thing, if you turn over in our Bibles from Matthew left, the very last verse that you'll read, a couple verses that you'll read at the end of the Old Testament, the very last thing in the canon from Malachi says this, Behold, starting at verse 5, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Bam. End. And so Malachi stops his ministry. That's the last thing that we have written from Malachi. And then silence for a very long time and lots of, 
lots of turmoil, different kingdoms come, and, and, and Israel has been, has been taken over by other people. Most recent would be the Romans. And then John comes on the scene. And I remember as a kid one time, I was, I, we lived out in the country in Ohio, and I was out playing basketball, and we had just gotten a chain link net instead of a fabric net, and I loved the sound. You know, you made one, which for me was like one in every 20 shots. And I would make one, and chink, I loved that sound. And I was out there playing, and uh, it, was, it was relatively warm. This was probably late spring, um, early summer. Maybe it was in the you know, low 80s, high 70s. And there was in the sky a very clear divide in the colors and in what was going on. On this side, we had clear blue skies. And coming in from this side, you can see it so clearly in my memory. It's my house, and then over my house is this dark sky and this shelf of dark clouds. And then, and then you had the front of the weather front. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it was a line across the sky. I felt like I was in a, like a movie or something apocalyptic. Just line across the sky, just this wall of dark cloud, and it was coming. And I was like, oh, I'm going to stay for this. This is going to be, excuse me, this is going to be awesome. And I mean, it was cool. It wasn't as climactic as it sounds. It wasn't like thunder and lightning and all this. But as it came, uh, a new wind blew. And you, I felt it. It went, Oof, and the front hit. And the temperature dropped about 15 degrees, and the wind picked up immediately. I felt the front come in, right? And it was, a, it was a new season. It was new weather. It was new everything. Everything changed. And John the Baptist, just like that weather system coming in, I feel the front of the front. John the Baptist is the front of something new, something they've been waiting for a long time. So imagine that coming, and you've been in a drought. We had a drought last summer. All the grass in my backyard died. It looks like a mess right now. And imagine you've had a drought, your lakes are drying up, your rivers are drying up, and you see this front coming in. Is this it? Is this it? Is this going to be what fills, fills our lakes back up and then waters the land and helps our crops? And is God about to act and do something crazy? The answer is yes. But that's why the Pharisees sent these messengers out here to see who is John? Who is John? And so we have to answer the question, who is John the Baptist? The second part of, of, of our time today, I'm going to take a turn and we're going to talk about a specific character of John that we ought to emulate. But first, let's talk about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, if you go right to the passage, this is the testimony of John starting in 19, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? In John's gospel, when he says the Jews, um, it doesn't mean the Jews. <laughs> uh, it, it can mean the Jewish people. It can mean the Jewish leaders. It can actually mean, uh, sometimes it has a negative connotation because it's people who are against Jesus, but in some places it's about people who have believed in Jesus. So you have to, through context, you have to see what does he mean by the Jews. And in this case, uh, we're told later on uh, in verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. These are, these are religious leaders. So the Jews sent priests and Levites, these are experts in the law, to, to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to him because he's out in the wilderness baptizing in the River Jordan. And they ask, who are you? Who are you? And very emphatically, it says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. See, this is repetition, really redundant. I am not the Christ. He says, don't get, don't get it confused. It's like, okay, so you're doing this crazy stuff. Like, are you, are you the storm? Are you the storm? Are you the new weather system? I'm not the Christ. And he said, okay, what then? Are you Elijah? Remember what we just read at the end of the Old Testament? Are you the one who is to come? I am not. I'm not Elijah. Interesting. This one's, we had a pause on this one. This is a little bit more difficult. 
Um, in Matthew 11, we don't have to turn there right now, Jesus is talking about how great John the Baptist is. He's the greatest one born of women. He's, he's the greatest of the prophets and more than a prophet. And it says, if you're willing to accept it, Jesus says, he is Elijah who is to come. So Jesus says he is Elijah who is to come, and John denies being Elijah. Um, what's going on here? He's not historical Elijah. We know this because when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, we see Elijah and Moses together with Jesus. So Elijah is still in the heavenlies. He was, remember, he was caught up by God into heaven. He didn't die. He was caught up, and then his ministry passed on to a prophet named Elisha. But Elijah, the historical person Elijah, is still in heaven. So this is John the Baptist. He's different than the person Elijah. But he comes dressed like Elijah, so he's wearing... He's wearing crazy camel hair uh, clothes. He's eating honey and wild locusts in the wilderness. Um, he's ministering at the place uh, on the other side of the Jordan where Elijah was last seen. He's doing all kinds of things in the spirit of Elijah. And so you'll see this in, in commentators um, as early as uh, the, the early um, church fathers. Augustine talks about this. Uh, there's current interpreters who will talk about this. One of the differences between John denying that he's John the Baptist or that he's Elijah. And Jesus affirming that he is um, Elijah is that he's here in the spirit and ministry of Elijah. He's coming as a preparatory prophet, more than a prophet, like Elijah. He fills out the form and the, and the, and the spirit of what Elijah uh, uh, did. Um, some would say that there still is the historical Elijah who was caught up will actually come back. And you might read about the two witnesses in Revelation uh, chapter 11 and, and maybe one of those is Elijah. Um, we won't go there though. So, he is here in the spirit and the ministry of Elijah to prepare the people for the Messiah. Does that make sense? Okay, so they asked him, he said, I'm not Elijah. And then they asked him, what then? Uh, are you the prophet? What prophet? This is the prophet like unto Moses. Are you like the, the prophet who was to come like unto Moses from Deuteronomy? Uh, Moses was the great figurehead of the, of the Jewish people over the old covenant. Are you the new one who's to come? He says, I'm not. So who are you? We need to give an answer to those who are sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord is what that means. Prepare the way, as the prophet Isaiah said. So they don't have a name for this. They just have the one who's come to prepare the way of the Lord. So why are you baptizing? Why are you doing these great signs that point to something new and crazy happening if you're not the Christ, the Messiah, you're not the prophet who is to come like Moses, or you're not Elijah? Like, what, what are you doing? And, G, and he says, John answered them in, in uh, verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't even know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So he's talking about the fact that he comes as a minister to prepare the way for someone who's even greater who's even greater. Now, let's think about this. He has brought on a following out in the wilderness, away from town, that is so big, and he, has do, he is doing so much that the rulers of the city, the religious rulers of the city, have thought it's important enough to get a, a, an idea of who this guy is. So they're sending a delegation out. There's crowds around the river. There's nothing else out there. I mean, now there is, but there wasn't then. And they're all coming to be baptized, this, this significant sign of repentance, of turning back to God, and they've got to figure out who is this guy. 
And he got more and more and more notorious, eventually, because he's preaching so publicly against Herod, the Roman uh, uh, ruler, he's arrested and then eventually beheaded. He's, He's a huge deal. He has all kinds of reasons to say, I'm a big deal. His dad was the high priest of the entire nation. His his birth was announced by an archangel of God. That didn't happen for any of you, I don't think. He was named by the angel. That's pretty sweet. His dad was made so he couldn't talk until he was born, and he named him John. This this is a big deal. I mean, this is a prophet sent by God. It literally says, sent from God in in verse 6, whose name was John. So he, he is more important and more significant than any of us here. Not only in the biblical story, but in just terms of notoriety and fame at the time. And he has the opportunity in this moment to claim whatever he wants. They come out and they ask him these questions, and we just take for granted, oh, John the Baptist wouldn't say that. But he has the opportunity in this moment to to grab for himself platform, prestige, success. I mean, he's weird, right? He's in the wilderness doing weird stuff. He knows that. Sometimes being weird is like, is the shtick, isn't it? Sometimes today, that wasn't his shtick. He was, he was actually separate from the people. He was, he was prophesying in the wilderness. And he has this opportunity to seize for himself something that a lot of us really deep down want, which is to be known and seen and to be recognized as great. This drive for greatness is a uh, massive impetus for why we go about the things that we go about in our lives, for a lot of us and for a lot of people in our culture, to get more, more fame, more notoriety, a a better position at 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 the workplace, more money, whatever it is. John the Baptist has it all in his hand. He is very, very famous, and he's got the attention of everyone. And what does he do? Augustine says this, You've heard very often, holy brethren, and you know well that John the Baptist, in proportion as he was greater than those born of women, so since he was the greatest person born, it was a bigger deal when he didn't take on himself the fame that was right at his fingertips. He was more humble in his acknowledgement of the Lord than any of us would have been. Because he could have said, you sound like the Christ. That didn't happen to any of us. No one came up to you and said, are you the Messiah? No, we don't, we don't speak with that authority. We don't speak with that, that sort of spirit-filled, once-in-a-lifetime generational, you know, revelatory moment like John the Baptist did. He could have taken that, and he said no. And because he was more humble in his acknowledgement of the Lord, he obtained the grace of being the friend of the bridegroom, zealous for the bridegroom, not for himself, not seeking his own honor, but that of his judge, whom as a herald he preceded. And this is the line that I want to talk about. Therefore, to the prophets who went before, it was granted to predict concerning Christ, but to this man to point him out with the finger. Every other prophet who had come before had images, had words, had to foresee that John the Baptist said, there he is. Look at the following paragraph. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, Look, pay attention. He's finally here. The front has come in. The wind has started blowing, and now the real deal is here. Behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me, he existed before me. How is that possible if he was born after you, John? John's older, by the way, by six months. How is it that he was before you? Because he's the preexistent son of God. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed, made manifest, shown to Israel and to the whole world. And then John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descending on him in the form of dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So not just in form, not just in shadow, but with the reality. He gives the Spirit of God. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The finger of John. He gets the point. And we're going to talk about the finger of John. In Christian artwork from that quote from Augustine about the finger onward, the, 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 the kind of cult or the mythology around um, John's finger kind of gets uh, held onto and captured onto. And so artwork, you'll see, here's a painting of John. Um, they, I don't know how they got an image of him posing, but they did. And uh, he's pointing. He's saying he is, um, he, he's God. Keep going. Next one. There he is. Behold. The Lamb of God. This is, this is all like Renaissance, uh, medieval stuff. This one's a little more of like a, <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it. It's more, it's more uh, delicate. And um, okay, so like you have artwork like that where he's, he's pointing, and you'll see all kinds of other ones where, but I love this one. This is a Latin uh, uh, Bible manuscript that was obviously handwritten. That's what manuscript means, handwritten. And um, they got to, uh, because they only made like one Bible every once in a while, they had to kill like 50 sheep to make a Bible. It's a really expensive thing at the time. Uh, thank God that you can go get one for like, I don't know, what you get paid for 30 minutes or 10 minutes of work. Um, they, they couldn't do that. There was one in a community. It was very costly. And they would illuminate these with images. And you see John, see his fingers? He's kind of, I don't know if he's dancing or what, but he's pointing at the, he's pointing at the infant Jesus and then he's pointing at the Father coming out of heaven, and on that little scroll thing, it says Deus, that means God. And so he's saying, this one is that one. Right? He's pointing. The finger gets some prominence. Go to the next one. I love this. Here's another page, and on the middle of this page, in the story of John the Baptist, you have this, this little, these are so small. I mean, this is probably that small. And look at the detail. Go in. That's crazy. But look at his finger. It's abnormally large. Right? This is really long finger on John. And what do you, but what do you see right there in that little circle? Can you make it out? A lamb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the lamb of God. He's pointing him out. Um, he is pointing to Jesus. Uh, John is the short one with uh, bare legs because he's uh, in the wild. Okay. So, no, for real. That's, I mean, normally he has like a brown hair thing on, but this is just, he's got blue and his legs are bare because he doesn't have fine clothing. He has very meager clothing. Um, so this is the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He points him out with a finger. And I love this imagery. There was another story. I've got to share this with you because I think it's fascinating. There was a legend that when Julian the Apostate, who was an emperor, a Roman emperor who came after Christianity, became kind of the official religion of the empire, Julian was like, no, I don't want to be a Christian. And he started persecuting Christians. He apparently found the remains of John and dug them up and tried to burn them, and the only thing that remained was his finger. 
I think that's a cool little legend. I don't, you know, I don't know. But um, there are churches who claim they have his skull or a piece of his skull as relics, whatever. But the fact that his finger remained, the point is that his identity and his posture, his vocation was to say, there he is. Look to him. All your expectations, everything that you needed, all your needs, there he is. You've been waiting for it to arrive, and he's arrived, and there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this, this uh, the vocation of John the Baptist shows out his humility. It shows out his humility. John's famous statement, which is really his life motto and his ministry motto, is, he must increase, I must decrease. Disciples who were following John the Baptist start leaving him to go follow Jesus as Jesus comes on the scene, starts doing miracles. And he's the greater one that John says, I can't even, I, I'm not even worthy to untie his, his shoes. People start leaving him. And what are you going to do, John? He says, he must increase and I must decrease. And what could we learn? What could we learn from the humility of someone like John the Baptist? What could we learn from his example? Someone who had it all someone who had the opportunity to, to, to grasp for, he could have used his hand to grasp for anything he wanted, and instead he uses it to point to the Son of God, the Lamb of God, and point away from himself. Before we discuss humility, let's talk a little bit about the opposite of humility. What's the opposite of humility? Um, one of the things that you could experience other than humility is envy. Envy. I know that, that doesn't maybe make a lot of sense, but instead of being humble and, and, and saying, I have what I need, and having a proper view of ourselves as we're talking about, th- the way that our world works is, I wish I had what they had a lot of times. I don't have enough, or I'm not enough, and I, I, I need what the, the fame they have, or I wish that my career looked like that career, I wish my house or my, my, my kids or anything else looked like what I see out there, and this is why social media is so damaging, because all you see is the curated, nice, edited representation of what everybody else's life looks like, which is not, in fact, it's now becoming trendy to do like the Instagram and real life side by side to like make, to be funny because it's someone like, how did you reserve that national park all by yourself to get a picture with the arches? And if you zoom out, it's like there's 70 people and it's not this reclusive great vacation that you wish you had because you hate your job. But it just looks great. And so you constantly start to have this envy and there's discontentment and I need more. And here's what Chrysostom says about envy. He says, a dreadful thing is envy, beloved. A dreadful thing and a pernicious. To who? The enviers, the ones who are doing the envy, the one who are jealous. For it harms and wastes them first like some mortal venom deeply seated in their souls. And if by chance it injures its objects, if by chance you injure the one that you're jealous against or jealous of, the harm it does is small and trifling. And such as actually brings greater gain than loss. We're told that our suffering actually brings gain, right? Indeed, not in the case of envy only, but in every other sin. It is not he that has suffered, but he who has done the wrong who receives the injury. You see, when you live a life of envy, of pride, of malcontent, when we live those kinds of lives, it ruins us. It poisons us. Because nothing's ever enough. To constantly compare and seek more and want what everyone else has is to poison your soul. 
Lack of contentment is lack of contentment, if you know what I mean. Like when you're not content, you're never okay. The virtue is the reward in some sense. Does that make sense? So like if I always want something more, then I'm always wanting something more. Being hungry is not a nice feeling, right? Like when you're starving, hungry, you haven't eaten for like a day or something. Does that happen to anyone recently? I had to do that for a procedure recently. I had to fast. And it's like, man, I'm hungry. So to constantly feel the need is to constantly feel the need, and it's its own punishment because our God is our belly. Christian humility says, I have enough, and I'm content. We point to Christ just like John the Baptist. So what is humility? Let's go through four things that humility is. Four things that humility is that John the Baptist um, demonstrated and that we can learn. So the first thing is a right view of self. We're going to go through four things. A right view of self, right pursuits, right relationships, and right posture. View of self, pursuits, relationships, posture. So, a right view of self. A right view of self is having an honest account of who you are and where you are. Um, it doesn't mean, humility doesn't mean that, you are, that there's self-harm or that there's self-castigation or that there's self-pity. Um, because in fact, um, there's a self-hate that is not godly and is actually pride, where there's an overly inward and self-focus uh, in the one who's self-hating. But rather, we have an honest esteem of who we are. Look at Isaiah. You don't have to turn there, but I'll turn there. Isaiah 66, chapter, uh, chapter 66, just verse 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. He's huge. He's bigger than everything there is. He's made everything. What is this house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Where could you contain God as big as he is? All these things my hand has made, the sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, the mountains, all of it, as grand as it is. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one on whom I will look, or who I will pay attention to. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In view of who God is, in relation to who God is, we are then forced to say, oh, I'm actually not that important. I'm actually not that big. I'm actually not that powerful. And in compared to him, we're all in that same spot. And so if I start comparing myself to you, I compare myself to someone else, I could think, man, I'm really pretty good. I don't have, my life is not a mess like theirs, or I make more money than them, or my house and my kids, or whatever. But when you compare yourself to God, when you have your eyes fixed on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you have a right view of yourself. It actually puts things in perspective. Thomas Akempis says this, if you desire to know or learn anything to your advantage, then take delight in being unknown and unregarded. Put that on Instagram. A true understanding and humble estimate of oneself is the highest and most valuable of all lessons. He didn't say self-castigation. He didn't say any of that, but a true and humble estimate. To take no account of oneself, but always to think well and highly of others is the highest wisdom and perfection. Romans 12, 3 says, not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you can uh, know what God's will is. And it says, don't think 
highly, more highly of yourself than you ought. So a right view and a right estimate of oneself. And then right pursuits. Humility has us in right pursuits. Godly and appropriate pursuits. Thomas Akempis says this again. It is vanity, vanity to solicit honors or to raise oneself to high station. It is vanity to be a slave to bodily desires and to crave for things which bring certain retribution. It is vanity to wish for long life if you care little for a good life. It's vanity to give thought only to this present life and to care nothing for the life to come. It's vanity to love things that so swiftly pass away and not to hasten onwards to the place where everlasting joy abides. This is what being transformed by the renewal of your minds means. It means you no longer fight for and strive for and try to attain those things that aren't yours in the Lord. See, if I'm not humble, I think I deserve whatever it is I want. And so my bodily desires, my emotional desires, whatever it is that, I, that comes up within me that I think I, I want and I, I deserve, I have to go after. And maybe you have the means to get it. In, you know, middle-class middle suburban America, like, you probably have the means to buy most of the things that you want within reason. And so you're constantly reinforcing this idea that I actually do deserve, because I have the power to get it, I actually do deserve those things that I want. And that forms us in a consumerist society. But a humble spirit says, I don't actually deserve or need everything, even though someone has made it and is telling me to make money off of me that I do need it. Humility says, it's okay, I have enough. I have what I need. Second, or third, right relationships. Humility gives us right relationships. It requires right relationships. Look at Ephesians 4, 1 to 2. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. How would you, be, how would you walk in a way that's worthy of being a Christian? How would you walk away that's worthy of being a Christian? By having humility and gentleness. Having patience, bearing with one another in love. So humility is not just a solo thing, but humility then affects our relationships. And humility has patience with people when they don't do things that we want because we're not the center of the world. And when they disappoint us because we're not the center of their world or lives. We're not the point. When I'm not the point, it's okay if someone maybe does something that might offend me a little bit. My psychological well-being is not number one in my world. God's glory is. And sometimes there are things that happen that are uncomfortable. And love and humility works through those things for the good of the relationship. That doesn't mean we stay when there's harm. I'm not saying stay in when you're being harmed in direct, abusive ways. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in the regular run of life, when there are, when there are trials and struggles and conflict, we work through those together. We don't run. No, we stay because humility bears with all things in love. And lastly, right posture. The fundamental posture of the Christian is what John says, he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. Why is humility worthy of the calling of being a Christian? Because it imitates what Jesus did. The posture of Jesus. In Philippians 2 it says this, that we ought to have this mind in us that is ours in Christ Jesus, 
who, although he was God, didn't uh, take equality with God as something that he should be grasped, but he emptied himself and became obedient to death on a cross. Going back in in chapter 2, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition. How many industries in our economy would just be gone if no one did anything from selfish ambition? How much of our economy is dependent on selfish ambition? How much time do you and I spend in our days and our resources on selfish ambition and vain conceit? How much would you get back if you gave those things up? And would it actually be a loss or would it be a gain? The story in the kingdom of God is that if we actually give those things up, we gain. When it's not about us, but it's about Jesus, we find our lives. When it's not about us, but it's about considering the interests of others first, we find life. Because that's how we were made in the image of God. So some diagnostic questions. What, what occupies your thoughts and your time? What occupies your thoughts and your time? Do you daydream about fulfilling your desires for your life? Or do you daydream about serving the needs of others and what other people might need? Do you think more about how others view you and about your image or about your brand or whatever? Or about, uh, more about how you can lift other people up? I, had, I heard one sociologist say that the advent of social media means that everyone now is a brand. Like, you live your life branding yourself socially. And I, I think that is so insightful. And there's something about that that we really need to take account of and really consider. Do I have the courage to be a nobody? Because God sees me and loves me and delights in me and one day will give me all things in the sun. Do you have the courage to be a nobody? That's a really hard question. I don't know if I do. I just don't, I just don't know if I do. I want it. Like, what if the only one who ever celebrated you was God the Father and Jesus Christ? Would that be enough? This final image is John the Baptist as the forerunner, giving himself over, saying, he must increase and I must decrease, and humbly saying, he's the one who matters, I'm not. And I think that his example is one that we all need to follow. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. He could have claimed whatever he wanted for himself in the moment, but he pointed to the one who was ultimate, who came before him because, who ranks before him because he was before him. John's example of humility is ours to imitate. And when we are humble, we will have the right view of ourselves, we will have the right pursuits, we will have right relationships, and we will have the right posture. So Father, I pray that you would help us to be people of humility, to imitate your servant, John the Baptist. Help us to love one another and to love you in humility and to have all these things by the power of your Holy Spirit in spite of our, uh, our efforts and our failings. In Christ's name, amen.